Hey there, welcome to a brand new episode of Show Me the Crypto. This week, we're joined by returning guest Haley Lennon, who's a partner at Brown Rudnick. Haley comes on our show to talk about the SEC, securities, all the latest drama going on. Alf, what were your takeaways from this episode? Man, having Haley on, she's such a wealth of information coming from that legal point of view, which honestly, without someone like her, would just go right over my head and is like difficult to really wrap my mind around a lot of these things. But she does such a great job breaking down uh, legal matters in a way that's easy to digest. So to have her on to go over everything that's happening with the SEC, Gary Gensler, Coinbase, Binance, and just have her break it down in a simple way. I loved it. It was a great chat. Yeah. And so like Alf mentioned, not only does Haley have this gift of being able to kind of simplify these complex things, legal matters that are at play, but she also offers this refreshing kind of unbiased take on what's going on. So it's very common in the crypto industry where, you know, people get their fists up, they're frustrated with what's going on, maybe understandably so, but Haley is looking at this from a picture of, okay, how do we see a path forward? How do we make this all work? And and she sees kind of both sides of, of the argument. So I think you're really going to enjoy this interview, this episode with Haley. Show me the crypto. <laughs> Show me the crypto. Show me the crypto. In a world on the brink of disruption, Two men will bring you clarity by interviewing some of the most intelligent and influential names in the blockchain world. Welcome to Show Me the Crypto with your hosts, Wade Patterson and Ulf Lonegren. Well, hi there, and welcome to Show Me the Crypto. My name is Wade Patterson. And I'm Alf Lonegren. We're a couple of friends from Canada who love learning about cryptocurrencies and blockchain technology, and we're happy you're along for the ride. Whether you're a crypto virgin or you know your way around the block, we hope our interviews with some of the most intelligent and influential people in the blockchain space help deliver you with value. And on this episode, we're joined by returning guest and friend of the podcast, Haley Lennon, who is a partner at Brown Rudnick. In July 2022, Haley wrote a Forbes article titled Coinbase is Ready to Challenge the SEC. Eleven months later and a significant lawsuit later, Haley is returning to our show to break down all the latest in securities and SEC drama. Haley, welcome back to Show Me the Crypto. Thank you. It's really good to see you all. And a lot's happened since we last talked. So thanks oh, yeah. for having me. Yeah. A lot has happened since we last talked. You're right. And so like let's go back to that because that was December 2021. At the time, one Bitcoin was worth $50,000 US, and we were just coming down from the, the tippy top, the peak of the bull market. So now that we're in kind of the depths of a crypto winter, what do you make of how the space has evolved over the last 18 months? I think we're still reeling from some of the collateral damage from the FTX debacle. Um, and obviously, that still has a lot to play out um, to see where the cards fall. But yeah, I mean, I think that the crypto space and Bitcoin have always faced a lot of regulatory scrutiny um, for various reasons. And when something big like the FTX situation happens, um, it just shakes things up, right? There's bankruptcies now, uh, bank failures, a lot of things for regulators to point to. And a lot of just general fear or frustration with all the people who've lost money these or have money stuck in these bankruptcies currently. So, you know, it doesn't surprise me that we're not all the way back up there. I, I think we'll get there eventually. Um, but yeah, the price is better then. And, <laughs> and my day job is a little calmer then. So <laughs> I'm busy. Another change since the first interview is you were previously with Anderson Kill and you've since uh, become a partner at Brown Rudnick. What led to that transition? Yeah, so um, Stephen Pally, Preston Byrne and I had created you know a pretty niche crypto legal practice at Anderson Kill and all the rest of the partners at that firm focused on insurance. So whenever we had really novel 
legal concepts. We didn't have a ton of other sort of departments and support to bring in. Um, and that was becoming sort of a pain point as we would grow with clients. You know, a client might come to us as a startup and we could deal with all the corporate and regulatory stuff. But all of a sudden, they have these really complicated tax questions um, or they want to actually become registered with the SEC. We didn't have as many attorneys that we could pull in to help with that. And so Brown Rudnick's actually the firm that represented Johnny Depp in the defamation trial. And, you know, they obviously received a lot of media attention around that. And I think that they were trying to figure out, you know, sort of what, where's the next thing that's, um, you know, not only going to be good marketing for the firm, but like where to put some, a lot of focus. And they were smart to realize that, the crypto space was that in industry. And so we all, you know, came over as a team to join Brown Rudnick. Um, it's been an amazing um, change. And just like I said, now we have all these different working groups and partners to pull into to things that, you know, partners that are smarter than me in traditional finance, but the, the legal questions still apply to the space. So now we have a really good team of the crypto specific experts and the these other areas that apply to crypto companies. One of the things that was great on your first appearance on our show was that you kind of broke down the whole concept of the Howey test and how a security is defined. And we're not going to dive that deep into it in this conversation. But at a high level, the Howey test, to my understanding, 1940 Supreme Court ruling based on an orange grove. And that is still the way that that securities are defined. So in your mind, is that still an adequate test based on kind of current day situations? And if not, why hasn't this been updated to fit modern times? So you know, the SEC regulates anything that is a security. And they have a long list of things that constitute a security. They also have the Howey test, which is how they define if something's an investment contract. And I think of it as sort of a catch-all. It's very broad, right? I mean, there's four prongs. We don't need to get into them. But it's fairly easy to argue, at least, that something matches those four prongs and is an investment contract. And with the SEC, you know, they have a lot of incentive to try to get as much regulatory oversight of this sector because it justifies them having higher budgets and more people, more enforcement actions, more fees and you know application uh, processes in place. And so, you know, I think that that's part of the reason we haven't seen an update because no, if you just look at it as does do four prongs that show that people manually working and building an orange grove in the physical world, that's an investment contract. And then you go to this crazy world of crypto where there's DAOs and decentralized protocols and smart contracts. And it's more complicated than that. I, I mean, to the in the SEC's defense, they did put out guidance a few years ago, trying to elaborate on those four prongs as they apply to crypto. So they have made some efforts to give guidance or just more detail on how you might be able to delineate. But the problem is, is that it's sort of a project's analysis versus their analysis. And the SEC um, has been very aggressive in this space in arguing that things constitute investment contracts uh, besides a you know straightforward commodity like Bitcoin. So it's it's created a lot of headache for the industry, for sure. And it would be better, in my opinion, for there to be some proactive regulation. But we haven't seen that. I don't think we're going to see that anytime soon. Um, and so this is the world we're living in. And you provided regulatory counsel for Coinbase a while back. And we're now in this space where the SEC is suing Coinbase. They're suing Binance. Can you just explain, maybe provide a bit of an overview of what the situation is right now, because there might be a lot of listeners who uh, they're not fully up to date on everything. So a bit of a, a recap and, you know, what's the situation today since that filing happened? Yeah, so I mean, pretty much the SEC says that many 
tokens, many crypto projects are securities. And what that means is that those protocols, those projects should go in and register with the SEC and register their tokens as securities, go through that whole process. It also means that an exchange that is facilitating the purchase and movement and custody of those securities should be registered with the SEC. You know, there's a few different registrations that could be applicable, broker-dealer license, ATS, um, even just a a traditional exchange with the SEC. Um, And the SEC has been saying that for a long time. And the exchanges have been uh, aware of that for a long time. I read somewhere that Coinbase has engaged with the SEC over 30 times over the past year or two, trying to say, okay, like, you know, I'm not privy to those conversations, but I would assume it's something like, if if we give you the benefit of the doubt and something we're listing as a security, can you tell us which one is? Which ones mm-hmm. are the securities? Maybe we'll delist them. Maybe we'll create a broker dealer and move them to a different, you know, platform or entity. Um, we'll register. We'll, you know, Coinbase acquired a broker dealer license years ago, and the SEC has yet to approve the SEC and Finro, which is sort of their SRO or counterparty. Both those entities have failed to approve Coinbase using that broker-dealer license for crypto. So, you know, I think um, I think that these companies are sort of in a catch twenty-two. Where uh, and also Gary Gensler loves to act like these exchanges are just blatantly avoiding the regulation, don't want to comply, don't aren't listening. You know that we're this like industry of just like bad actors. And if you look at the statements put out by Coinbase, it's like, well, if you can't figure out a solution after a company like Coinbase engages with you 30 times to discuss a solution, then maybe there's not a solution with it, at least in the way the regulator is looking at it. Right. So, you know, now the, the SEC has brought enforcement actions against a variety of exchanges. They did have Bittrex, I believe Kraken was part of it, Binance now, Coinbase. Um, they're definitely starting to show more teeth against these exchanges. The problem is, is that that clarity for a solution, then it is a catch-22, right? There's not, there's not a solution. And so I think the problem is, how do you allow these um, exchanges to register? And hopefully through litigation or through settlement um, and through sort of continued discussion, that becomes more clear. Um, you know, while the SEC was serving Wells notice on Coinbase and then, uh, and then eventually, um, this lawsuit and enforcement action, Coinbase was also filing suit, petitioning through a writ of mandamus, which is sort of a petition for the court to push the SEC into providing some sort of clarity. They, they're asking, Hey, SEC, are you ever, are you going to clarify rulemaking? Are you going to say these are securities, these aren't? And if you're not, at least admit that. And, you know, the SEC is sort of doing what reg- regulators do, keeping keeping their tight, you know, lips tight, not showing too many of their cards yet. But I, I think it'll be really interesting to play out. Um, yeah. I read a, a YouTube comment on a video with, uh, with Gary, um, you know, talking about, all this regulatory action and the the commenter they said what Gary Gensler and the SEC are doing is like if you were a policeman pulling over cars on the highway and giving them speeding tickets but there was no signs posted with the speed limit on it so they didn't know how fast they could go do you think that statement is somewhat accurate in this situation? Yeah, it's there's a little more nuance. I, I think it's pretty on point and it's funny. There's maybe a little more nuance because I think most people, at least my opinion, is that some of these tokens and cryptocurrencies are securities under the current framework. The issue is more um, you can't give someone a ticket for not registering if you don't tell them how to register. It's more like giving someone a removing the brakes from a car and then <laughs> and then <laughs> and then arresting them for speeding um like that sounds it, worse <laughs> yeah, yeah maybe it, maybe it is worse I, yeah i just you know i i work with i was in house at coinbase like you mentioned i represent a lot of these clients um exchanges tokens 
um, even tokens that are proactively engaging with the SEC. So I try to be careful to look at this really objectively and not just hate everything the SEC is doing because there are paths forward. There just needs to be sort of a two-way cooperation and dialogue. And I truly think that exchanges will start to become registered with the SEC, but they have to be allowed to do so. Um, and so it makes these enforcement actions a little... The, you know, the Coinbase one specifically, it makes it pretty interesting if they can say, well, we talked to you 30 times and we, we acquired a broker dealer for a lot of money. I mean, what, what do you... What's like the next what step? What do, do? Yeah, yeah. So in the bio, I mentioned that going back to last July, you had written that Forbes article that was talking about Coinbase ready yeah. to battle the SEC. And then you tweeted out, you're like, hey, not saying I predict the future, but... <laughs> Here's an example. Can you like what what prompted that article and at the time what was happening? Yeah, so I just I I mean, in part from my time at Coinbase, but just from what I observed just in the industry after I left, I think that for a long time, you know, if you go back even to like in the United States, we have state by state money transmitter licenses and the bit license companies early on were very much engaged with regulators. Um, to try to help educate, you know, there are aspects where these companies understand the tech or the nuance even better than the regulators in the early days, right? So there's like many years of companies, I think, engaging with the regulators more cooperatively, diplomatically, trying to explain, trying to find that middle ground. Um, and I just sensed that we were getting to a boiling point where eventually you have to say, you know, talking nice isn't working anymore. Um, let's let's figure this out. Um, I can't remember exactly the timing. I think that was even before the insider trading allegations that first happened against not against Coinbase, but about a you know former employee of Coinbase, where they you know alleged that a former employee was doing insider trading on securities, thereby implicitly saying they were listing securities. But there wasn't yet an enforcement action or anything against Coinbase. But it felt a little bit like a shot fired, right? Because you can't you can't have insider trading claims against securities unless you're also saying Coinbase lists securities and they're unregistered. Um, so I just kind of saw these. I think that happened after my article, but I just felt like there was a turning point where eventually you do have to kind of... Well, there's two options, right? You leave the US. Mm-hmm. And plenty of companies do that. Um, or you say, you know, we've tried to come to the table so many times and it's just not working. Um, and yeah, so so yeah, I wrote that article and then I I was reading something unrelated on Forbes and saw my, that article and I was like, I'm going to tweet that. That was, that was a pretty good call. <laughs> totally, totally. Well, Brian Armstrong tweeted after the after the lawsuit was announced that... They're proud to represent the industry, and he hopes that what comes out of this is some level of clarity around crypto rules. So the question for you is, what is this going to look like? I mean, what's the process that's going to happen now? How long is it going to take? And do you think at the end of it, there is going to be that clarity, or is there going to be more ambiguity? I think anytime a company is willing to put so much time and resources towards not just settling um, and pushing a regulator to explain things and litigate. I mean, we've seen it in the Ripple XRP case. Um, and I think we'll see it with Coinbase, likely. Um, that just eventually, if you're willing to put time and resources towards litigation or settlement discussions or just you know talk, conversations to try to find some solution, you both sides end up having to show more of their cards. And mm-hmm. with the, you know, X, uh, Ripple XRP case, we've seen, you know, emails and conversations with the SEC that we probably never would have seen, you know, in another if they had just settled. Um, and it gets, starts to give you a little bit more insight into like the mind of the regulator and what's driving it and when it when it's changing and how it can change. Um, you know, I it's hard to predict the length of time or the exact way these, you know, enforcement actions or litigation against exchanges will play out. But um, you know, right now 
Coinbase still has that petition, that writ of mandamus, and um, and the court is trying to to, I think, sort of, I think they're in a way siding with Coinbase on that specific issue of just saying, "Hey, SEC, you need to answer this question. Like, are you going to do, you know, some rulemaking, or are you know, have you closed the door on that? And that's not an option." Um, I saw somewhere that the court had asked the SEC to reply in a week. And then the SEC, I think, asked for, I can't remember whether, maybe three months or something. Like they asked for a very long extension. Um, I jokingly tweeted like, no, you can't have that because we've been waiting for a really long time. Um, but, you know, that is how it works. It, it'll, it, it's a slow process, the judicial system and the process is slow and it takes a long time. But I think clarity starts to trickle out and then you see how it works. I mean, it could result, uh, this is totally me, you know, projecting or guessing. I have no insight on this. But, you know, sometimes things can result with a regulator like the SEC as a settlement that also as part of the settlement would um, have some sort of requirement that an exchange register. And in that way, you're sort of, you're creating a agreement with the regulator that they're going to also help you through that process of registration. I think that that would probably be the ideal situation. I don't know if that's what Coinbase wants, um, but that would give some clarity. If they, if the SEC can show a path forward of one exchange becoming a registered broker-dealer and listing tokens, then there's a roadmap for all the others. If that were to play out in that 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 type of scenario as far as an outcome goes. Is that something where from Coinbase's perspective, would they be feeling like they're between a rock and a hard place and coming to that decision and, and having to then work with the SEC, but maybe, you know, adjust their business in ways that they don't prefer, but because they made the agreement to get out of the, you know, to settle, that's now the path they're sort of forced into. Um, yeah, maybe you can explain like you know, the, the implications of that a little more. Yeah, again, it's like, it's so hard to pro- project and I am not speaking on behalf of Coinbase in any way. I think that oftentimes if there were a settlement like that, it would probably because you know, there's an there's a chance that a company could be facing a fine for those right. alleged violations, right? Like we've seen a lot of examples of the SEC forcing disgorgement or fines for these enforcement actions. Sometimes the settlement is we agree and we'll pay the fine, or it could be something like if we don't do what you're asking us to do and you don't help us do it, we'll have to pay a fine. So, you know, it could be a way to avoid any sort of like financial repercussions for the alleged violation while also sort of helping the regulator create a clear path forward. Because I think the biggest thing that companies say right now is the SEC says, come in and talk to us, come in and register, right? Coinbase goes in to talk about their lending product. The SEC says, if you launch that, we're going to sue you. Coinbase comes in 30 times to talk about registering as a broker-dealer and they get a lawsuit. Um, If the SEC could have something to point to and say, come in and register, and this is how you do it. So-and-so was able to do it. To me, that if I was the SEC, I would want that. I I don't know if that's what the SEC wants. And I certainly don't know if that's what Coinbase or other exchanges want. Um, but if I was a regulator, I would want to incentivize compliance instead of just continuing this messaging of coming and register. No one wants to register. It's really clear that that just that can't be the messaging forever because companies are literally like, we are trying. Yeah. And what about if at the end of the day, this is looked at, perceived negatively by basically not just the the, the crypto public, but the other exchanges too who are currently operating in the US, what will the implications of that be if everyone basically looks at this uh, and says, this is too difficult and scary and risky to be operating an exchange here in America? Yeah, I mean, 
I think that we that's definitely a risk we're facing right now is that innovation. Um, and you know, on a personal note, I'm more of like a Bitcoin maximalist. Like I personally invest in Bitcoin, but I'm also a free market advocate. And the idea that projects or companies wouldn't have a the ability to stay here and offer that to people who want to be a part of it. I mean, people can walk into a casino right now. You know, even if you just even if you think that there's no benefit to other cryptos besides like gambling. Okay, well, gambling's not necessarily a bad thing either. But you know, there there is innovation happening here. So yeah, I think that companies feeling like they have to leave the US is definitely a risk. You know, Bittrex actually announced that they are that they have left the US. Um, if, if a company, you know, were to go down this registration route, and this is sort of a probably unpopular lawyer opinion, there is benefit almost as like a regulatory moat, right? Like if you embrace regulation and you become registered and you can stay here, there may be exchanges or competitors that don't want to do that, can't do, can't afford to do that. Um, and unfortunately, that means that you sort of have the upper hand. Um, you know, regulation and banking are such interesting topics in this industry because they're not popular, right? Like there's a big aspect of crypto that's anti-bank, anti-government authority. Um, but that's still the world we're living in where it's like you need... As, from a business perspective, you have to figure out what your strategy is and and how you're going to play it. So Haley, I'm, I'm curious, within the lawsuits, there were a few digital assets in particular, that were named as securities, but also with the explanation that it's a non-exhaustive list, that there's probably more that this would apply to. So some of those included Cardano, Polygon, Solana. Why, in your opinion, were those particular assets or like this this group of 13 that kind of seem like these random assets to point out, uh, why were those named? It's a really good question. So I'd even like go back further. I mean, I think we've seen ways in which you you can take so many examples of SEC actions as them sort of putting in a random single or list of tokens that are alleged securities, right? So we had like the Kim Kardashian settlement where she, where she was promoting Ethereum Classic and everyone was sort of like, Kim Kardashian, Ethereum Classic, you know, the same thing happened in the Coinbase Insider Trading case. I think they listed like the the DOJ listed like 11 or 12 tokens. The SEC listed, you know, eight. And as a lawyer, I was like making a chart trying to figure out why, why those handful of tokens were on the DOJ list, but not on the SEC list, meaning they might not be securities. It's really hard to make rhyme or reason out of um, what the SEC chooses. And that in part is what we were talking about earlier, where litigation might give some of that sort of what's going on in the brain or the office of the SEC. Um, It may be that the SEC has already dedicated some sort of investigation or enforcement into those specific projects. But then again, none of the things they've listed, we've seen, we haven't seen enforcement actions against those token projects. So, um, what I think more, and you sort of mentioned it of like, it's also never an exhaustive list, right? So it doesn't really give us anything because it's like these eight things, but lots of, lots more. We're just throwing a few and see what stick. It feels like to me, I actually, where did I, I read something where, someone called it like the the SEC's naughty list. Like they're creating this like list of tokens. Um, and I can't explain the rhyme or reason, but I will say that I think that they're... It sort of reminds me of like a squirrel collection. Just like start to pull in a list. And when I've made this point uh, before is when the gets these settlements you know, the the true settlements that, that don't result in any sort of litigation, like a Kim Kardashian that's like, fine, I'll pay that fine. Like, I don't want anything to do with this space. I didn't even know what I was getting into. Um, the SEC is sort of getting these implicit wins, right? Like they're not actually having to litigate the facts. They're not having to go through the four prongs of Howie. And even though a settlement isn't really a win, it's like they can kind of start to say 
well, we put so much regulatory pressure on this person or this company that they settled. Um, And so, yeah, I think it's all just a continued goal of getting more jurisdiction over the space. Um, But I can't, I mean, and that's a problem, right? If a lawyer can't explain, this is exactly why this one's on the list. But that other one that pretty much functions the exact same way and the white paper looks almost like copy and pasted, why that one's not on the list. Like that's the lack of clarity that everyone's complaining about. Do you think we'll come out of um, these current lawsuits with with just that, with an like actual clear definition that you could that anyone could maybe go look at uh, a token, a crypto asset of some kind, and say, "Okay, based on these factors, I can pretty confidently say this is or isn't a security." Do you think we'll get there, or is that day a long way away? I think it's still a long way away. I think that the SEC would say that the guidance they put out a few years ago that brought more factors into all four of the factors of the Howey test was an attempt to help. I mean, the way I really think about it, like if a client, a prospective client comes and they're, they're going round and round talking about all the protocols and stuff, part of it is like, is there a token before the protocol's live? And is that token being used to fundraise to make the protocol live. Like, so I try to think of it in even more simplistic terms. Maybe it's very conservative. Maybe it means that, you know, there's arguments that could be made both ways. But that's how I think the the SEC really thinks about it is if you didn't have something live that people were buying the token to use it in a protocol right away then what else is it? It's an investment contract. They're, you're, you're fundraising. It's, an, it's not an ICO. It's an IPO, right? And so that's how I think of it. Um, but yeah, I mean, it would be great if we just had a two-column list of what's a commodity and what's a security, right? And like, But even the, even the SEC and the CFTC, the CFTC regulates commodities... I don't even think they could get into a room and make that list. They'd probably be like, no, that that belongs on my side. No, that belongs on my side. So yeah, I think it's still a long way away. I mean, there's a world in which we see some sort of congressional action um, or some sort of legislation that helps clarify this. But again, I think that's a long way away too, because in the United States, we haven't seen you know, we're starting to see presidential candidates that understand this space more, but we haven't really had we had the Biden executive order that didn't really result in anything helpful thus far. So, yeah, I think it's still a long way away. Do you think how the U.S. is handling this will impact how other countries will as well? So in terms of these lawsuits, the outcome, everything like that, do you think there's other countries watching closely that will that will follow suit or take a different path? I mean, I think there there are other countries watching this closely, but maybe not. I mean, the United States in general likes to be sort of the trendsetters, right? They have Wall Street, they have this financial regulation, we're the strongest economy in the world. I mean, I don't know if other countries are looking at this the same way, though. I think that we've all already seen exchanges start to make statements about other jurisdictions that are more friendly or more clear. Um in a way, countries have incentive to do it better than the U.S., um, not like learn from the U.S. or take anything the U.S. is doing as, a, as an example. So um, I, you know, even if I wasn't in this space, I think I would just be surprised by how the U.S. is handling this industry because I always thought of the United States like as an American, as... Um, as a country that valued innovation and freedom of expression and um, bringing jobs here and industries here. And it just feels like we're like really messing that up. Well, and to that point, Haley, I mean, Coinbase, I think it was, did research as well. They did, they conducted a study earlier this year, which found that 20% of Americans own crypto. So that's not kind of this, this niche thing anymore. It's yeah. something that's impacting more and more people. So so with that in mind, I mean, we've talked a little bit about it, but like beyond just kind of the innovation piece, like what is what does the US kind of stand to lose if if 
they are so heavy handed in this. And then we see all these exchanges going to other countries and choosing to operate in different places. Yeah, I mean, part of like when I say innovation, I almost mean acknowledging that there are aspects of the traditional financial system that are archaic and don't work well. Um, If you think of, I mean, I started my career before Coinbase, before Silvergate, before crypto. I worked at a company that was a wholesale currency exchange along the Mexico border. Um, And just seeing like the friction of moving money, right? Like physical cash in an armored car or the friction of people wanting to send money to other countries and the fees and the time delays. Like if we, you know, we all love the internet, right? Like what if there had been some regulator and there was some friction points about the internet in the early days and it came from this misconception that it was being used by criminals and blah, blah, blah. But, you know, the idea that like we might have a better option in terms of moving money or storing value or holding value for ourselves. Um, and then we don't let Americans access those things. is pretty tragic, I would say. Um, yeah. And I just, to me, it, it just doesn't make sense to not want it here. And I, I agree with you. Like it's over the years of working in the industry, we went from like only criminals use this to like, Oh, it's shadowy super coders. And that's like, no, a fifth of the United States is using it. You can like, talk to your grandparents and they have questions about it and like want to know how you buy it. I mean, why, why would you eliminate people's ability to explore that? But I say that kind of in a joking way, because of course the government has reason to want to limit that, right? That brings so much more like sovereignty and control back to the people and away from the government. Um, So yeah, it's just, it's a really interesting, there's so many things at play, you know, there's different like regulatory incentives that regulators have, there's political aspects at play, there's sort of government and monetary policy controls at play. And so it all, it all melds into this like crazy world we're trying to maneuver. Haley, want to switch gears here and talk about another well, a bank that you were involved with uh, in-house for for Silvergate. And just kind of given the banking crisis, the situation we we found earlier this year, what was that situation like from your lens of someone who who was involved there and just seeing how it played out kind of in March of, of this year? Yeah. So yeah, Silvergate was my first in-house crypto company role. Um, and I helped build out their you know, due diligence programs for them to decide what crypto companies to bank. I was there for about two and a half years. Um, You know, I've seen a lot of people refer to what happened with not only Silvergate, but then Signature and some of these other sort of crypto slash tech friendly banks as like Operation Choke Point 2.0. And I think that's pretty fair because if you think of access to banking, that should be like, a pretty human right, you know. I mean, obviously, if a company is committing crime or um, facilitating, you know, helping uh, fund terrorist activity, I'm not. Obviously, that's another area. But when it just comes to like an industry that you don't like, um, and you know, choke point two one point in the U.S. was the gun industry. Um, the gun industry, you know, had trouble with banking accounts being closed, shut down, um, and you know, it's sort of like my wor- world's colliding because I, I was at Silvergate. And then when I worked at Coinbase, I reported to Brian Brooks, who then became Office of Comptroller of the Currency that oversees sort of the regulation of, of federal banking charters and that sort of thing. And when he was there, he was putting out a ton of really pro-crypto guidance just in terms of like banking access, that industry should not be debanked um, because of sort of a fear or dislike of those ex- of those industries, um, and so I definitely, you know, that the day that the Silvergate bank news broke, I was like heartbroken just because it's my like my starting it's my roots, right? And like the team's great. A lot of the people I worked with are still there. Um, I don't know the whole story of the different you know conversations they were having. Um, but I think that there was a lot of regulatory pressure at that time, post FTX, post other things happening in the industry and just like the bigger, you know, sort of environment. Um, 
and yeah, I mean, the way I sort of summarize it is that if you think about there's sort of two main things that are required for the flow of funds to work in crypto adoption or Bitcoin adoption, however you want to think about it. People need to be able to go somewhere easy, right? Like newcomers to this industry need to be able to come somewhere easy. Let's say a Coinbase, connect it to a bank account, allow their bank account, allow them to put money in there and buy some Bitcoin. And then, you know, hopefully go self-custody it. But that's a top... (laughs) for another day. Um, those exchanges then all of a sudden have those people's money, right? So I go to Coinbase, I buy Bitcoin, I give them $100. They now have my $100. They need to go put my $100 somewhere. Well, they need a bank account for that. And so if you think about the easiest way to attack an industry, it's the banks, or not just an industry, the, the crypto industry, because the financial sector Um it's the centralized exchanges where new people interested in the space would most likely go to buy. Um, and then it's it's the you know companies that facilitate that exchange, their bit ability to access banking. So I sort of saw it as like a two-way attack that we're experiencing right now pretty aggressively. Um, and the fact that Bitcoin price is still puttering along and the industry is still building and companies are still making exciting announcements. Like it really felt like the industry was able to brush that off and just sort of go find new banking relationships and start litigating against the SEC. And you know, so we're putting up a fight. It's like David and Goliath. <laughs> totally. On kind of on that same note, like some of the other comments I've been seeing people say about this whole situation is that uh, what the SEC is doing is essentially trying to uh, like buy time for for TradFi and for the big banks to um, sort of get their foothold in the crypto space before all of the real crypto um, you know companies and individuals uh, get too far ahead of them. Do you think that's true? And I do want to just extend this question because it's on the same, it's very related. But on the SEC's website, it says its mission is threefold, to protect investors, to maintain fair, orderly, and efficient markets, to facilitate capital formation. And I'm primarily interested in that first part, to protect investors, because that's something you've heard Gary talk about. Do you think the SEC's recent actions are abiding by its mission statement to protect investors and tying it back to that first question or is this are there ulterior motives here that uh in why they're doing all of this yeah i think um i think it's fair to say that i'm not even sure i would say ulterior motives but you know regulators have motives whether it you know i've heard this idea that gary ginsler wants to become secretary of the treasury one day and as a result like his political stance on this sector would maybe need to be in line with who he would follow in their footsteps. Um, I think that it's very fair to say that um, that maybe the government doesn't see the true value of this because they haven't um, suffered the same sort of consequences of the traditional financial system as like some of the everyday Americans. Um, that want the ability to sort of regain some of their control and ability to store value and hold things how they want, where they want it. Um, So, yeah, I think that that is definitely a situation where at least motives aren't exactly in line. To the investor protection question, I mean, I think the real question is how do you prove that an investor, that you're protecting an investor, right? Um, and probably the best test is do those investors feel protected? And I would say no, they don't. Um, oftentimes, these enforcement actions are negatively impacting the price of things that people have invested in um, because of the way in which the SEC goes about it. And you know, and then now people can point to exchanges that have really hurt a lot of people or projects that have hurt a lot of people that the SEC seems to have not protected investors from at all. Um, and then focusing on other exchanges that, you know, maybe have been a little bit more in line with 
what investor protection looks like. So, you know, I I know that the SEC has their hands full with this space, right? We move really quick. We build decentralized protocols and DEXs and we're all we have all these anonymous teams of people all over the world working on stuff. I, I don't I don't mean to just be um make it like black and white, like the SEC bad, our industry good and all this isn't working. But yeah, I mean to really protect investors from a fast paced industry it has to be very thoughtful in the approach to do that, right? And it can't just be enforcement actions on the back end that don't really make sense. And everyone's confused. And everyone's like, Hey, why? I hold a lot of that coin. Why did they just say it's a security? I don't understand. Um, I mean, the thing with if a token is a security, what that means is it would become registered as a security. And there'd be a ton of more sort of disclaimers, disclosures, there'd be a lot more transparency from the project that would be required. I think most people in this space are very... We love transparency, right? We're like constantly sharing information on Twitter and like talking about things. And when a company seems to be operating not transparently, everyone starts to like call it out and talk about it. Um, So there's almost like... The industry almost self-polices in a way. Mm -hmm. Um, And if a regulator wanted to step in and say, this is how you become registered. We know it sucks. But... All these people really deserve more information, and those people got more information. Sure, that's that's consumer protection. Some people might read the, you know, dozens of pages of disclosures and information, but um, but no, I mean, an enforcement action against an exchange or or a project or a Kim Kardashian, <laughs> I don't think that's helping. <laughs> yeah, totally. Oh, one other thing I want to ask about Haley, we're we're getting close to to the end of this conversation, which has been awesome, by the way. You're you're doing Thank such you. a good job of explaining all of this. Uh, but it was something you tweeted out, and that was that the IRS has recently put out a bit of guidance uh, on the tax treatment of some NFTs as collectibles. Um, what was that? What was that guidance that was put out? Yeah. So um, many regulators, including the IRS, will put out guidance and then at the same time ask for comments. So it's not yet like a, a rule. It's some, almost like a half rule. It's like, this is what we're thinking. This is probably what we're going to do. Probably nothing you can say will change it. But <laughs> share some information, talk to us, give us comments. Um, what the IRS put out, I think it was like early l- last week was... And people had been talking about this sort of concern already is, you know, NFTs are this sort of crazy other world where they can be so many things, right? They can be like artwork. They can be you know, a picture that you can put on a shirt or like sell. They can be um, digital ownership in something. Um, and the, the so, you know, currently an NFT, you would be taxed on um, just like the, you know, income or like capital increase that that, that NFT experiences. The IRS also has something called collectibles, which is things like artwork or even like Medals or gems, um, coins, stamps, things that like you would think of as a collectible. And so, and those are taxed differently. They're taxed much higher. I think it's like 28%, depending on your tax bracket. It's, it's a very high tax um, based on how those collectibles appreciate in value. Um, and so, part of what the IRS is saying, which I think I agree with, although I'm still kind of thinking through it, is that if a if an NFT, um, you know, is ownership of something that they already think of as a collectible, so you have like a gem, a, a diamond or gem of some kind, and the NFT, you know, is is evidence of your ownership in that, that that NFT itself would also be a collectible. They think the bigger concern is if the IRS starts to get kind of clever with how they define just when an NFT could be a collectible if it's not tied to a physical collectible. Um, if it seems to have some sort of other inherent value or like becomes very popular. And so all of a sudden, it's more like someone would hold on to this and it would become a collectible. But it's just kind of a broad uh, term. Um, and so I think that that's the area that people should be like the most concerned about is the IRS keeping that definition uh, of when an NFT would be a collectible and taxed at a higher rate, 
pretty clear and clean so that you can decide if you want want to hold this thing that's a collectible versus if you just want a funny picture of a monkey. <laughs> so Haley, based on that, your opinion of like, let's say, I mean, you mentioned monkey, like a bored ape or something like that, because there's no specific physical thing initially. I mean, they've innovated over time and then introduced different like airdrops, which is a whole nother story. But in terms of that, would that then kind of by this definition, because it's something that's become popular, sought after, would that fit that definition of collectible? It doesn't seem to on its face. Um, mm. That's more why I think the the ability for people to actually send comments to the IRS. And when I say that, I don't mean send them a mean letter yelling at them for <laughs> <laughs> taxing you. But like, yeah, actually thinking through implications like that. I mean, yeah, they have a de- they have definitions of collectibles. I, I couldn't recite it off the top of my head, but you know, there is a way in which that definition would be limited, even in the context of NFTs. But you know, you if you think about like, oh, Beanie Babies, did those become collectibles because they became such a big thing? Like, you know, Bored Apes, I would say, is a bigger thing in the NFT space than a lot of the other projects we're seeing. So, when does something? become so like mainstream and sort of that epitome of an NFT that you have that in like 40 years would be like a collectible and can something change form? I mean, those are all the things that I think we need to think through as an industry and engage with the IRS. Um, because yeah, it is a heavy tax, you know, burden and, and also, you know, is it, you know, the price determined when you transfer the NFT somewhere else? When, what if you could transfer the NFT, but still regains some sort of ownership long term in that physical collectible? There's the NFT space is just an NFT can be so many things. It can even be like a membership to something or access to things, access to special, um, you know, videos or, or music or things, access to artists things. So yeah, I just sometimes regulators, you know, they're trying to keep up with the times. And, you know, it's funny, because I always joke, like regulators tend to not like this space until it comes to taxing it, right? Like, they'll be like, they'll be like, there's no inherent value in any of this. You know, these people are crazy, these like, you know, people in this industry. And then they're like, but (laughs) <laughs> we are going to make money if you make money off of it and sell it or it becomes a collectible. Um, so it's interesting. The IRS has not really made a ton of proactive guidance about the crypto space besides the whole that, you know, being, um, being treating it as property. Um, and so this is sort of the first time where there's additional guidance and, and the opportunity to comment. So we'll see where it goes. Well, appreciate that update. My God, it's such a hard thing to like, like you said, I mean, NFTs represent so many different things. I just have these visions of them trying to figure out like crypto dick, butt. where does that fit into the category in these types of things? Yeah, exactly. Exactly. (laughs) Haley, one last thing I want to ask you before we jump into the the last three question segment that we ask every guest, which we've asked you before, and we'll get an update on your answers. Uh, I don't remember. I don't remember them. So it'll be like, first time. Perfect. Perfect. But first off is something we talked about last time you're on the pod, which is an initiative you started women led called crypto connect. Where's that at? Because I would imagine in the depths of a crypto winter bear market, it's hard, right? Like these crypto conferences, they're not as busy as they are during the bull markets. And and just this networking group, is that still alive and kicking? Or Mm -hmm. is it like, what's the status on crypto connect? Yeah, it is alive and kicking. And I think even more than the bear market vibes, uh, the caliber of women that I brought into that group, like have a day job and like a second job and a third job. And then Crypto Connect is like this fourth and you know, fourth or fifth initiative that we all are trying to juggle. So I mean, we're we're still live in those cities. What we're trying to we actually had like a call last week to almost not rebrand, but like revamp the initiative because the initial goal was really for Crypto Connect. We have members. And when we launched, we had like 7,000 signups, like almost overnight. And I was blown away by the amount of interest. Um, you know, we threw events in all 12 cities where we have sort of chapters. But my goal was not to like sort of become the event host in all these cities. 
but to maintain more, just to help connect people to what is already going on in those cities. So we're actually working to like revamp uh, the website and, and, and have an app of some sort that's more a place where companies can, you know, list their events in different cities where Bitcoin or crypto meetups that already exist can be sort of listed. So you could just sign up and click, I live in Chicago, just sort of see the things that are going on all in one place. Um, so we're trying to do that and potentially be more, have some sort of like mentorship or career aspect to it as well, like job listings. Um, because we're all just so busy that trying to do like monthly or quarterly parties in all these cities, it just, it didn't end up being as, uh, as obtain, you know, something, something we could actually do. So it's my first time, you know, I, I'm in a partner at a law firm and I write for Forbes and this is my first time trying to almost be like entrepreneurial or like a founder of something. And I definitely give, um, entrepreneurs credit because it's like, <laughs> there's so many iterations. And even when you have the best team of it possible, um, just like leading and knowing how to make it work takes some time, but it's, but yeah, it's definitely, we're still having our board meetings and just trying to figure out a way that we can be a really good resource without adding too much like redundancy or additional events where people just get sort of burnt out. Well, kudos to you. It's an awesome initiative and excited to see it continue to grow. As I mentioned, there's three questions we ask every guest. It's a segment we call you had me at crypto Alf's going to ask you those questions and we'll see how much they differ to your previous answers in December okay. 2021. All right. So I'm going to ask you the I'll ask you the question, we'll get your answer, we'll reveal your original answer after okay. the fact. All right. All right. So first question, who's your favorite person to follow in the crypto space? I wonder who I said last time. Um I have like a lot of close girlfriends in the space, like Aubrey Strobel. Um, I think there's a lot of really funny people in the space. Um, I, you know, I have a lot of exchange CEOs with like alerts because I feel like when CZ or the Winklevoss twins tweet, I'm always curious what it's about. Um, but I'll go with Aubrey. I think she's pretty funny. Cool. Your previous answer was Brian Brooks. Oh, well, yeah, I, I do like he's been quieter. Maybe that's why he's not my list anymore. He, um, I feel like he's been tweet. The bigger you get, the less you tweet and the less yeah. like, you know, but yeah. Yeah. All right. Second question. What will the price of Bitcoin be 10 years from now? I wonder what I said. <laughs> <laughs> 10 years from now. I'm going to go with 10 years from now. I'm going to go with 1.5. Really? Yeah. Same answer as last Same time. Same answer as really? last time. Yeah. yeah. Which is actually also one of our highest, like... Yeah. Yeah. Your top five highest answers. We had lots. We had lots back when things were popping off around a million. Over yeah. a million, we've only had, you know, yeah. a few. You heard, so. it, you heard it here. <laughs> yeah. I almost said 1.25, but I don't know. I, I was like, we'll pop it What up. I love about that is it was 1.5 was your answer in like the height of a bull market and yeah, now are much we're still in crypto like but the the determination the uh the yeah. belief stays so yeah. i love same. that i like it's so funny because i honestly do not remember these three questions <laughs> or my answers so this is like authentic stuff yeah that's nice. awesome <laughs> all right third question what is the most underrated project in crypto I feel like maybe I said basic attention token last time, but I mentioned sure. it. You mentioned it, but you had kind of a a bigger answer that was different. Yeah, I mean, the first thing that still that comes to mind. I don't know if I said this the first time is privacy coins or just like adding different aspects of that to uh, Bitcoin. I think um, I also think that the direction we're going with what we were we've been talking a lot about with the SEC is that. And all exchanges are either going to become registered eventually. I don't know when that will be, or they're actually going to become decentralized exchanges that are actually decentralized, like no team behind it that you can point to. I'm not smart enough to figure out how that actually works, but um, 
I think that that is an area that's going to keep being a big focus um, because the way the technology works and the protocol and smart contracts and um, you know pools and things like that, there's a way to do it, I think. But there's you know with with DAOs and decentralized exchanges, there's still sometimes like even a very decentralized group of people that you can kind of find or point out. Mm-hmm. Out of those two options, which do you think is the better future? Oh, I think, I mean, I think privacy is always a good thing to to add to anything. I'm a big proponent of just like, it's not, this is what I'll say. I think as a lawyer, it's funny because I understand sort of the government or people's fear of this idea of privacy because people think of it as secrecy, right? They think of, if you want your privacy, it means you're hiding something. But like that's we know that's not true, right? You want privacy in your own home, and it's not because you're doing a bunch of crazy stuff. You just want privacy. Um, so yeah, I, I would go with privacy. Cool. Privacy was your answer last time. Privacy coins. Dialed in. Dialed in. Yeah. Look at that consistency. And Aubrey got a, sh- a shout out. So yeah, yeah. Nice. <laughs> love it, Haley. We appreciate having you on the show. You're so good at explaining all of this. And also, what I think is really nice and kind of refreshing is that in this industry, often you get the extremes. Right? It's people who are just like absolutely against the SEC, against Gary, all that kind of thing. Whereas I think you have a more level-headed, like, let's let's figure this out together approach, which is, yeah, as I mentioned, refreshing. Thank you so much Thank for you. joining Alf and I on this episode of Show Me the Crypto. Thank you for having me. Great to see you all. Thank you for listening to Show Me the Crypto. Please make sure to subscribe as well as rate and review this podcast.